This episode of Gospel Bound is brought to you by Crossway and the new ESV Bible app. The ESV Bible app is designed to help you engage with God's Word on a deeper level, offering elegant, intuitive features to personalize your study, including multiple audio recordings of the full ESV text, audio playlists, customizable background music, daily reading plans, and more. Download the ESV Bible app on your phone or tablet, or visit esv.org to get started. You're listening to Gospel Bound, a podcast from the Gospel Coalition for those searching for firm faith in an anxious age. I'm your host, Colin Hansen. You probably noticed that the views toward and practices of marriage have changed, but how? And how do Christian views and practices differ? Well, that's what Mark Regneris set out to discover in a global study of Christians from across denominations. You'll find the results in his new book, The Future of Christian Marriage, published by Oxford University Press. Mark is a professor of sociology at the University of Texas at Austin and author of many important books, including Cheap Sex and the Transformation of Men, Marriage, and Monogamy, which we're going to talk about in this interview as well. And also Forbidden Fruit, Sex and Religion in the Lives of American Teenagers. So you can see how this book builds on Mark's previous work. You might not read a lot of sociology, but if you're a church leader, you need to read this book. He put into words what I've observed but did not understand. He gave me context for the trends and a sense of urgency about the consequences. Mark found that marriage is no longer something Christians pursue in order to meet life goals. It's something they aspire to do someday if life works out in the meantime. The result is far fewer marriages, of course, but this shift means a lot more, not only for Christian marriage, but for Christian ministry. Mark describes the intrusion of the market mentality into our homes, marriages, and bedrooms. He writes this, Our most intimate relationships are being treated as a means, often discarded, to attain those ends and acquisitions that have been most effectively marketed to us. And what is the result for Christian marriage? Nothing good, Mark warns. Quote, young adults are offered no guidance about maturation, mortgages, or marriage, save for words of caution, counsel to delay, and cost-benefit evaluation. Mark joins me on Gospel Bound to discuss the monumental, consequential, and subtle shift in Christian marriage. And, well, also way too many questions than I have time to ask. Thank you for joining me, Mark. Happy to be here, Colin. Thanks. All right, Mark, let's start with this most basic question, which I found that you really just can't assume today. Why should church leaders care about trends in marriage? Because after all, Paul told us it's better to stay single. Jesus showed us that that way through his example. It's been the history of the Western church in many cases to prioritize uh, singleness. And I know a lot of listeners think that the problem with the church today is that it overemphasizes marriage. Uh, I hear that last one a lot that, uh, oh, we're obsessed with it. That's all we talk about. And there's only one right way to live as Christians. And of course, it's not true. I don't know too many pastors uh, who would say such things. Um, you can get that impression, perhaps. and then, and then But the, part of the deal is that religion in general, and, and certainly Christianity, tends to flourish in the presence of vibrant family life and sort of healthy reproduction rates. I mean, it sounds kind of crass and crude and maybe even secular, but uh, the institutions of religion and family 
those two things just track together. And where you see families recede, you're going to see congregational size recede, probably congregational activity recede. It kind of seeps into all aspects of congregational life. You think about like the voluntary sector and congregations. I mean, all of it's tied back to, not all of it, but most of it, to reproduction and, and what are people doing in their marriages and in their families. If I'm not mistaken, the thesis of your book seems to revolve around your description of the capstone view of marriage as applied to Christians. So, why don't you go ahead and explain what the capstone view of marriage is, why it's a problem? Because as you point out in the book, basically everybody assumes that this is a sign of success. Right. The capstone model of marriage is kind of where we're we're at today. Uh, It's in contrast to what I call the sort of foundational model of marriage. So, uh, I went to a wedding just this past weekend. It was, you know, it's delightful, etc. And and the the bride and groom were uh, fresh out of college, which is increasingly rare. I know a lot of us still see them, but uh, I don't think those are the certainly not the normative kinds of weddings we're going to these days. And you know, I've said to my wife, like, well, there is a foundational marriage happening. You know, they're ambitious pair. They have great goals in mind, but they're going to work those things out together and support each other through it. So that's the foundational vision. That's the kind of thing like when we go back to our parents or grandparents are married when they're 18 or something. Um, Yeah, they built something together, which is completely different in many ways from this capstone vision, which is now normative, if not always in practice, certainly in mentality. The idea that, you know, it's a capstone. It's the thing that you, you, finish off uh, the sort of a successful young adulthood with. It's, <clears throat> if the foundation is the, the bottom of the house, the capstone is the piece, you know, that crowns it in some ways or completes it. You, uh, you sort of work your way towards marriage in the capstone mentality. Um, and you accomplish things in part in order to make oneself more marriageable, right? Uh, I'll get a good job, a career, a car, house. Get rid of some of this debt. Exactly. In order to sort of make yourself more attractive, theoretically, right? But it's a mentality that I have to achieve marriage. And instead of like this sort of, uh, are we... We're meeting, falling in love, and marrying in order to then do those things together, right? We'll retire debt together. We will, you know, live a period of poverty together, and it will be formative for us. We'll benefit from that. And I think there's a there's kind of a generational divide in here. I'm not sure exactly when that happened, but uh, where you'll see parents or grandparents like reflect on how it used to be quite different. Um. It, but this thing has happened, this drift, it, it's not necessarily directly tied to the sexual revolution, although there are connections there we can explore. But like this mentality permeates how most people, including most Christians, think about marriage. It's something you do when you've got it together. Well, you go at length about why this is a problem. And one of the problems is pretty simple. A lot fewer people get married and a lot fewer people then want to get married. 
get married. That's one of the things yeah. that happens with this delayed marriage. But one of them, I, one of the other examples here, I think, is going to be embedded in my next question. One reason I appreciate you as a as a scholar and as a writer is you're not afraid to say controversial things. What makes you say marriage is the social justice issue of our time? Right. That's a yeah. I remember writing that and concluding that, and um, it's uh, you, you look around sort of our situation today, and we can even talk about like equality uh, and inequalities and. Um, this sort of the success sequence that some sociologists like Brad Wilcox, uh, my friend, writes about. And you know that like people who get married, stay married, tend to, to flourish uh, over the long run uh, better than people who don't or who get married and fall out of love and get divorced, etc. cetera. Uh, it's, it's not a, a simple thing. It doesn't necessarily mean your marriage will be permanently happy or among the, you know, the top 50% of marriages in terms of uh, quality or satisfaction. But, uh, you know, it, it's, it really is a, a justice issue. And I, I go into this in part because uh, Bruce Weideck, he's an evangelical economist at the University of San Francisco. Um, he observed in Christianity Today several years ago that sort of the, the move towards cohabitation that he sees in general and that I increasingly see in, in the Christian church, uh, he thinks that's rooted in uh, an injustice typically due towards women and that uh, they're most women on average, when they fall in love, they eventually want to get married to this person. And now we're seeing this sort of slow move towards the altar, often increasingly with a spell of cohabitation. And we wonder, like, why is that? And who's benefiting from that more than other people? And so that, that's when you see sort of, well, it looks like a better deal for men. You know, you have access to sex, you, have, you live together, she does other things for you, and what do you do? You're, you're, in, you're holding back from that other person a total gift of self. Typically speaking, you also, you don't, you don't want to have children when you're cohabiting. So, that it, my model of marriage that I talk about, I, I call it an observed model because you just look around you and this is what you see. It, it, that kind of cohabitation mentality strips the core of marriage uh, of its four key sort of supports, including totality permanence, because if you're cohabiting, you're not thinking about, you know, is this going to last? Uh, fidelity, well, we'll see about that. And uh, uh, expectation of children. No, you don't want to have children when you're cohabiting. So this sort of thing looks unjust. And it looks more unjust towards women than towards men. But we don't actually hear much about marriage as a matter of justice today. And I think that's really unfortunate. And you also point out that it's one of the best means available to us to be able to improve our economic situation. Right. Strongly I mean, correlated to that. So if you're just talking economic right. injustice, there's one of the simple best things that somebody can do is to yeah. get married, stay married. So the, on average, that, statistically. On speaking. average, right? And that raises, of course, questions about like the, the kinds of people who are ready for marriage or 
um, you know, a self-selectivity, we call it, right? And then we can probe into, well, why is this person or that person not ready for marriage? Why are they a poor marital prospect? But then we can dig deeper and find that, well, probably because they too grew up in, in a, a divided right. household. I mean, it's, uh, you know, I, I think I say it in this book, divorce is the gift that keeps on taking. Hmm. Um, and uh, it's, you know, it's, it's not prep for, for marriage, right? And people whose parents divorced, those parents tend on average to counsel um, their kids to be very careful, um, to have your own job, et cetera, make your own money. All this stuff is very, very much so uh, this capstone mentality. Basically, like only marry if you absolutely don't need it. And that accords with what we've seen sociologically that divorce is infectious. Right. Um, yeah. The more you see people divorce or the more you've experienced divorce, the more likely you are yep. to divorce, which is one of those factors that I think people get completely thrown off with when they see the scary 50% statistic or whatever, which when you qualify it a number of different ways, makes a lot more sense. But one of them is if your parents are divorced or you've been divorced before, uh, you're much more likely to divorce yourself. Um, there's so many different directions to go in this book of just fascinating paths that we could go down. One of them is how you describe that most Christians now see two jobs, two incomes as necessary, uh, economically necessary. But then beyond that, they also see it as a complete improvement over traditional norms, um, however you might want to define that, but especially often with the wife and mother staying home. But I'm wondering, based on your research, based on your writing here, is there anything you'd want to tell these couples about those traditional norms that they may not realize until it's too late? Uh, the book is not about trying to get people to return to some older model. It's, it's you know, I'm writing down what people are up to and uh, what the kind of norms are. And the norms are clearly flowing in the direction of this the expectation that we're going to have two full-time careerists in uh, the household. Now, people can thwart that, and I talk about when people see it and wish to thwart it, and plenty of people do. But uh, I'm, you know, across seven different countries, it's, it's remarkable uh, to see that it doesn't even cross people's minds. Now, some of that has to do with... Uh, situations in different countries that are just categorically different than ours, we have the advantage and disadvantage of having a lot of wide open space and you can move around in search of jobs, although doing that kind of separates you from your family of origin, which creates risk and is, is, is a sadness and, and over the long term for lots of people. Um, compared to other countries where uh, I, I talk about Lebanon where, you know, if you can't make it in Beirut, you can't make it in Lebanon. Right. And so a lot of people there move to uh, England or the Gulf states if they really just can't seem to make it on, on one and they want one income. I, one of the things I observe if we're, if we're using those categories is it doesn't really matter what your views on traditional roles, doesn't even matter your views on Christian or, or not being a Christian. Ultimately, Two parents, two incomes with especially multiple children is very hard. And it's rare that I ever see a circumstance where one of the parents doesn't have to step back at some level career-wise. Could just mean settling for not progressing up the ladder, which often includes moving. Um, might mean having to stay near additional family help. 
Uh, you can go in a lot of different directions, but I find with different religious practices and observances within my own broader family, those dynamics don't necessarily change because parenting and marriage and simply keeping up a home, and especially if that home is very large, and then especially if you've built that on top of graduate school dollars, that's a lot of that's a lot of upkeep and then a lot of debt to service as well. And more or less, whether you've thought this was a good idea or not, you're pretty well backed into it. So yeah, it, that's kind of why I phrased the question the way as I did of like, what do they maybe want to know about this before it's too late? Right. Because right. I think one of those things is, well, the decisions you make about schooling and about where you go, to, where you go to school, what you study, how long you study, where you live, what size house you have, what expectations you have for living, those decisions are not set in stone, but they may force you into certain decisions about career and family, whether you were intending to arrive there or not. Now, I mentioned that I wanted to talk with you about one of the things that you're well known for writing about, this concept of cheap sex. I think I could summarize your your findings by saying that sex is considered by non-married Christians. To be clear, we're talking here about Christians. That's what the book is, The Future of Christian Marriage. Sex is considered by non-married Christians to be cheap, while abstinence feels costly. Why is that the case? Because uh, in their in their social realities, uh, this is just the, the the world they're they're living in. I mean, I I guess I was a little bit surprised when we posed the question: uh, Is sex easy? You know, in your in your orbit, I was surprised by how many people said, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." I mean. <laughs> Back when I was 18, 20, 22, like that didn't seem easy at all. It seemed very mm-hmm. difficult. Uh, so um, I'm, I guess I'm just stunned at that they are giving me the same response that uh, I heard from largely secular folks that I, we interviewed in, for cheap sex. Now, it didn't mean that they were engaging in, in sex themselves. Uh, some were. But I was just taken aback by how they felt there was a uh, uh, that abstinence was expensive and no guarantee of working out the way they had hoped. Um, they really do feel like they're put in a bit of a, a vice from different corners. That uh, you know you engage too early with the wrong person and you you know that's going to mess things up. You wait too long. And uh, say no to people, like maybe your opportunities will run out. So I, I hear that kind of anxiety uh, a fair amount from Christians, especially women. It's the reason why I said in the book that Christian men who are committed to abs- uh, to, to sort of a chastity, uh, absence until marriage, um, are far more likely to realize it in their life because they, you know, in, in the modern marriage market, they are more in the driver's seat than women for reasons I explain fairly extensively in, in that other book. Although I do have, you know, I do highlight it. Yeah, it, it comes up. Uh, fair. I mean, it comes up. And I guess the contrast here is that you're saying there really does not appear to be a substantial difference between Christians and not Christians. Women feel pressured to be able to give up sex fairly quickly, to be able right. to get in return uh, commitment. And right. that men do not feel as though the commitment is necessarily required because, right. and they also tend to get the sex. So again, that, that seems to be the, the basic concept that you find is not, is not, ex, is, is 
pretty similar from, right. from most Christians, Christians that you run into. Christians have to thwart that mentality uh, and the sort of the practices that kind of flourish around it if they're going to sort of remove themselves from that experience. Right. That's tough. Right. Well, and, and and we'll get into this in some of the subsequent questions of of some of the models of what Christians can do because you actually have some some recommendations on that based on what you've seen work through the study. Uh, but let's continue through, especially another topic related to uh, the cheap sex, online dating. Um, I'm, I've been around long enough to remember that it was kind of a taboo for Christians, uh, something that you wouldn't necessarily talk about if you were doing. But you point out in the future of Christian marriage, it's now something of the norm. But with that becoming the norm, does either correspond or contribute to differing views of marriage? So how does this shift affect these views and practices of marriage? Right. Uh, yeah, it is certainly normative now. Um, very few people that we talked to, though, like that turn, right? I mean, it's, it's, hmm. it's, it's a thing that has occurred. Some people see advantage to it. Some people see disadvantage to it. But it's often this kind of backstop, right? There was this time when people weren't marrying um, uh, right out of college or in their early to mid twenties. Uh, and, and then before online dating came around, there was this kind of like, you know, if you were 27, 28, you were like, oh, I don't know how I'm going to do this. Right. <laughs> and then along comes online dating, which seemed a solution to a lot of people once they sort of the stigma got over that. And that's, that, that's definitely long gone, that stigma. Um, and yet, I talk in the book about like the 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 way it operates. Its underlying kind of algorithmic orientation does it doesn't vary widely between say eHarmony, Christian Mingle, Catholic Match, and Tinder. Frankly, I mean, like we're we're talking about some of the same ways that people use it. It signals still that there's you know the way the world operates and the way Christians operate comes together in this way because the the way online dating work is it privileges physical attractiveness of people and any sort of status markers you can discern and it even more importantly perhaps it privileges efficiency right that's why it's there um, you're able to cycle through persons quickly. And I don't think we were designed to cycle through persons quickly. Uh, so, it, 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 it makes us pickier, um, less likely to solve upfront problems. I think it was either in this book or in Cheap Sex, I talked about meeting <laughs> my wife right. uh, back in 1989. Uh, and uh, well, there wasn't really competition <laughs> for mm. me. So, now, you know, if I was single, even at 49, I mean, I'm sure that I could get attention. But uh, that kind of approach makes you think that uh, all of this stuff is equivalent. Oh, sure, I could find somebody else. And it, may, it gives us a sense of, oh, there's no rush to this. This is a backstop. I can always do it. But uh, I think that people... You know, there's plenty of horror stories to this that uh, I think there's a, a wisdom in getting rid of the computer algorithm and relying on people 
as intermediaries to help you accomplish this. Now, that becomes a problem when the dominant mentality is, oh, of course, we'll meet online, right? Then you become the freak if you don't want to do that, which is yeah. highly unfortunate. Well, I, uh, I've been trying to figure out what kind of remarks I want to deliver for, for this wedding that I'm performing on Saturday. And this is a couple who met through my church and even through the, the home group that we lead. And one of the things that I had helped to encourage the man to reach out to the woman and uh, help to kind of start that process. And one of the things that I planned to say is that this wasn't because I thought the two of you would be compatible. It wasn't because I thought the two of you were somehow an excellent match. It's because I knew the two of you love Jesus and you love serving him. Yeah. I, mean, and I was like, and if, and if you were committed to that, um, you would, there would, I mean, that's not a guarantee of anything, but it's far more important than whatever kind of compatibility algorithm, right. yes. any kind of online dating could produce there. Oh. Not to mention your ability in a, in a social setting to be able to observe that person mm-hmm. and also to be able to, ob- to talk with trusted people who also observe that person. Right. The, the, the mentality with online dating is it fosters this, uh, I call it exogenous match quality, right? Or this notion of chemistry right. that we can do it better than, than you people can do it yourselves. You have to get matched before you meet uh, right. rather than meeting people and, and making a match work, which is more endogenous inside the relationship, right? There's so much about marriage that people eventually find out, oh, I didn't get prepped for that. The algorithm, yeah. algorithm didn't help me with that. You know, yeah. it's, uh, something, it's learned behavior. Well, I think it's noteworthy also that that kind of algorithmic expectations was really fostered by Christians and marketed to Christians, especially from eHarmony. I remember yeah. those ads from the early 2000s. So yeah. it's not like in your book being the future of Christian marriage, it's not like these trends are somehow dramatically different right. inside the church. And in many cases, such as this one, the whole soulmate idea, or uh, you need to match, you need to be compatible, you need to have that spark. Um, yeah, that chemistry was often explicitly right. promoted by Christians for some kind of at least quasi-Christian motivation. And you know, Mark, your, your work has been controversial, and I think in part because you're, you're looking at data and you're telling people what doesn't necessarily conform to the acceptable narrative, whether inside yeah. the academy or sometimes inside the church. You point out that critics react strongly when you point out the influence of contraception on modern mating dynamics. Why do people flip out when you point out what is, I think, rather obvious? Yeah, you would think it's obvious. Um, I, you know, I said in the book, like, I don't know why people can't, uh, people in this case, you know, my academic peers uh, outside the church, why they go bananas when I sort of uh, suggest that there's a downstream problem here with uh, artificial contraception. Um, it's almost as if I, I say in the book, uh, you know, just by poking holes in it, the whole contraceptive world will collapse and uh, people will steal their pills. It seems I, very I, fragile <laughs> for some reason. Like the, like right. the whole edifice is, is just waiting to collapse if somebody... I just, I mean, talking to a lot of young couples, I find that you, you set out how there's just very little Christian education about mm-hmm. marriage. Contraception is one of those things that 
through my position at the Gospel Coalition, my leadership in a local church, multiple churches, people just don't talk about it. Yeah, uh, I know when we I mean, got course, married, like, it was just an assumption. Right, it exactly. Did not that's what I mean. Require a conversation. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I wish you know, I wish we had you know had thought through this stuff. And frankly, like it it nixes the the need for both a woman and her husband to care about uh, her body and fertility and what that means and how that works. It's just sort of like here in this enlightened age of, of easily accessible knowledge, we don't actually want to even know how the body works. The market has overtaken a lot of traditional Christian understandings and practice. And, and also because your book is a, has a global perspective, means that you find that across these seven countries, widespread uniformity. Yeah. Uh, not yeah, in every I mean, case. But. It is, uh, it, it, it's stunning. I, I, I started writing the book and traveling and listening to different people's perspectives because I wanted to know if the stuff that I had written about in Cheap Sex, the book, right. was happening elsewhere uh, mm-hmm. or maybe things were better in, in Christian communities around the world. And so, you know, I, I did learn that there, there are some places where things are a little bit better on, on some of these counts, not necessarily all of them. Uh, and some places where things were worse, but uh, I'm somewhat stunned to think like, wow, f- all the way from Lagos, Nigeria, Beirut, Lebanon, Moscow, Russia, Mexico City, you know, they're, they're all, they all look like Americans in terms of their mentalities and in- increasingly their behaviors. Power uh, of the market and the power of media. Totally, totally, absolutely. Almost 100%. And and if I think if if readers can and this is why I recommend it so widely to to church leaders, if you can recognize that if that's true of Moscow, Russia, then you better believe that that's going to be true of your church here in the United States, whether or not you're teaching the complete opposite of that, yeah. because people are going to be picking up these broader cultural narratives, even if you've done a pretty good job of of buttoning that up and showing a different model. But one of the things that you, you, you have a whole list, um, I guess I could pull it up in the book, but um, you have a whole list of how it changes Christian marriage. Could you give us a few examples of how the market mentality changes Christian marriage? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, these are things too, that uh, you and I probably, bo- and I certainly admit it in, in this, uh, the book that I've, I've, I've done, a variety of these things, right? Oh, yeah, uh, that's right. Yeah. You know, we uh, plow more time into our work, especially men, thinking I'm doing this for my family. I We overwork. I overwork still a lot, even though I know this is not good, not good for your family. And my wife reminds me of this in no uncertain terms. Um, uh, but I'm saving up for college, right? I mean, I have two kids in college. So, I, you always justify these things in economic terms. Um, uh, you wind up, the, the Sabbath used to be sacred. Now, it's half a work day, quite often for many people, including Christians. Um, uh, uh, we outsource the care of of children to other people. We outsource the care of our parents to strangers I mean, because it's more efficient. And because, well, we're working, we have other things to do, and, and oh, they don't want to be with us anyway. Uh, I don't want to be a burden to my children. All of these things that are kind of not the way families are kind of designed to be in the first place. So I have this list that I kind of go through. Yeah. 
all of which are profoundly mundane, normal behaviors. And yet I say in the book, like, we don't even realize how penetrated we have been by market mentalities, right? So I, I don't have a problem with the idea of markets. Uh, and I'm a big fan of the free market. <laughs> At the same time, I know that it has no loyalty to family and to marriage. It doesn't stop at the front door of the house. It wants in. It wants to colonize your home. It wants to colonize your bedroom. And uh, and it doesn't belong there. This is where I lean on, I believe it was my Aristotle, where uh, <laughs> from the beginning, you know, uh, marriage and family are meant to be uh, served by the economy and the state, not subservient to them. Yeah. Well, I, not only, I think I would take it a step further. You, you say that the free market has no loyalty to family marriage. I would all right. family and marriage. I would go further to say that it actually has an incentive to right. undermine them. Right. I mean, in terms in a pursuit of you talk about cheap sex. Well, let's yeah. talk about cheap labor. Yeah. One of the easiest ways to get cheap labor is to double the workforce. Yeah. And so, uh, one of the ways to get uh, expensive housing in a housing yeah. market is by requiring two people to work full time to get it. Yeah, and exactly. I mean, a, a bit, yeah, builders, you make more money if you build an $800,000 house than you build a $200,000 house. So what do we get? We get more $800,000 houses. With more $800,000 houses, we get more major professional incomes, debt, professional debt to, I mean, just on and on and on. It feeds itself. I mean, yeah. it creates an entire market. That's just why I find the book so helpful is because you're engaging these different disciplines, especially sociology or expertise, but you bring in economics, you bring in history, you bring in a little bit of philosophy there, not to mention Bible and theology to be able to help bring a full picture that I think a lot of people miss of how much these, these phenomena can change and how they can change rather quickly in yeah. a matter of a couple generations or even just one generation. But with the time left that we have, uh, talking with Mark Rignaris on future of Christian marriage, I do want to be constructive here and ask what can churches do to encourage better views of Christian yeah. marriage? Yeah. Uh, so chapter six, I think it is out of seven, uh, explores eight different ways in which you know, we might be able to sort of stimulate marriage in, in our midst. Not all of these are kind of focused on things that congregations or individuals can do. A few of them are uh, sort of more social uh, collective ideas. But uh, first, I think we need to hear more stories from people. I heard this with considerable frequency from people. They, they need to see exemplars, hear exemplars. Um, uh, I, and I gave this, this one example of, uh, uh, this was, a, a, a an archbishop that I had met whose, his mother and father had been separated by the iron curtain mm. for 16 years wow. before they, before he managed to, to be reunited with his wife and have, and, and then he was born 16 years after his oldest or his only sister. And I think to myself, I was like, can I ever be a man like that? Hmm. Could I do that? Could I, could I have the, 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 the patience and the fortitude to hang in there? I mean, these kinds of stories are really important for people to hear and to see. So, I think we need to tell more stories. Um, I talked also about like 
creating or recovering marriage-friendly subcultures. And this is where parents now, you know, parents of small children, parents of older children can, uh, can work on those things. Like make your house sort of a, a, a haven in, the, in you know, what Chris Lash called the, a heartless world. Sort of make marriage attractive to your children for these reasons, right? And so, and I explore about some examples of how to, to make that happen in reality. Um, I think effective marital preparation is, is, is unusual, but really, really important, probably more important than ever, uh, especially when you think about like, well, in the foundational era of marriage, people just kind of figured it out, right? Well, <laughs> that, that era is gone. We have to tell mm-hmm. them how to do these things. And so there are better and worse ways of prepping. And I think a lot, a lot of people are recognize that marriage prep is, is, is critically important and we're doing a better job at it. Um, yeah, more, more examples in the book that I would be, would love to, I mean, that's why I want to give people enough from this interview yes. so that they go and pick up the book. I just kept taking these notes and I kept writing these long lists and I thought, well, let's just hope we get them a flavor. But I got to just one more question about the book and then a sure. bonus in the end, right. but um, uh, we'll dig a little bit deeper into the, the, the academic sociology here. This is going to be over some people's head because they're not necessarily trained in this, but could you explain your embattled and thriving paradigm shift? Yeah. For viewing Christian marriage within the wider culture, um, I think it relates to the previous question. But right, right. Uh, so in the in the last chapter, I sort of talked about these kind of competing theories, the embattled but thriving mentality that uh, Christian Smith, my advisor from graduate school days, had written about in American Evangelicalism. Oh, that was probably twenty years ago already. Yeah. Um, so this mentality that, you know, it doesn't matter what the world around you is doing as you can have healthy, thriving subcultures that are kind of built in opposition to that world. A little bit, uh, like, uh, uh, Rod Dreher's Benedict, uh, Benedict option. option yeah. Right? Yeah. Not entirely the same, but, uh, a little bit of that mentality versus I juxtapose that theory versus, um, the moral communities theory that, that as what goes on around you rolls forward, that will affect the church no matter how much you're trying to do the embattled but thriving thing. And just in sort of the observations in seven countries, I, I see more evidence of that moral communities thesis. Like as a society corrodes, et cetera, um, it is very difficult at least in this domain of marriage and family, for it not to corrode the church uh, in terms of its conduct of marriages and families. Um, yes, you can have kind of examples of embattled but thriving uh, people, groups, congregations, maybe. But uh, frankly, like, you know, I, I start the book looking at sort of international marriage rates uh, since 1980 and how they have collapsed practically. And so it's no surprise then that you know uh, marriages among Christians are are suffering uh, in terms of their uh, rates. So, but I think you know I think we're better positioned. We have theological uh, foundations to build upon. We have good ideas. We care about this. So the future is not determined or decided, but. Uh, left to our own devices, like we will lurch in that direction. You go so far as to say that we could see fairly 
I don't know exactly what your time frame is, that marriage will be a, a Christian thing. Yeah. So I, one of the predictions I end the book with is as marriage recedes, it's receding faster on average outside the church than inside the church. So that will largely mean that over time, you know, marriage comes to be equated with the religious of the world, Christians, especially conservative Christians, Muslims, Orthodox Jews, etc. Uh, it, it, it becomes a conservative thing, but also a, a religious thing in the United States, particularly Christian. So, you know, that, that's, we can kind of equate like caring about marriage as a Christian idea, but frankly, like marriage is old. Marriage is not limited to the church or to religion. Right. Um, but that's be, it's becoming more so. And the argument I make is that, you know, Christians want marriage more than other people want it. Yeah. My guest has been Mark Regneris from the University of Texas at Austin talking about his book, The Future of Christian Marriage, just brand new out from Oxford University Press. Mark, last question I always love to ask on Gospel Bound is what's the best great book you've read lately? The best great book I've First read. First thing off the top lately. of your head. This is not supposed to be polished. Jeepers. Um, you know, uh, every now and then I, I, I read a, a novel. Uh, go uh, for it. <laughs> I really liked All the Light You Cannot See. Oh, that's a good one. Uh, that's that a was, good one. Was, you know, it was, you know, takes place in France in the right. Second World War. I liked that. You know, it's not something that sort of, moved my thinking or anything like that nope. but you know a good novel is as you, you takes me away from the kind of the, <laughs> the grind that i feel like i work in yep no that's why i asked the question i love to yeah. bring it there because people will usually give you the honest answer which is the first thing they can think of which is the book that stuck with them so that's why i asked uh, yeah. it that way all right mark you've been a, a great guest and again i encourage all christian leaders to to pick up the book because this is the world that you live in, the world you inhabit, and the world that you're ministering to people in. Thank you, Mark. You're welcome, Colin. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of Gospel Bound with Colin Hansen. Join us next time as we continue the search for firm faith in an anxious age. Visit tgc.org gospelbound to find transcripts and past episodes. Subscribe to my newsletter and suggest a guest or topic that will help you find hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ.